Well, good afternoon. Welcome or welcome back to the Conference on Understanding and Responding to the Islamic World after 9-11. My name is Robert Wuthno, and I want to say, as Provost Gutman did this morning, how delighted I am that we are able to have this very timely and important conference here at Princeton today and tomorrow. I also want to say how grateful we are to Mr. and Mrs. Reed for your generosity. And I also want to thank our distinguished panelists and speakers for coming so far to be with us. It is quite an honor to have you here. Before introducing this afternoon's session, I also want to take a very brief moment to bring warm greetings on behalf of the Center for the Study of Religion. I'm currently director of that center. This is a new uh, initiative, relatively new. Uh, its purpose on campus is to uh, provide opportunities for the interdisciplinary study of religion in its diverse manifestations across the humanities and social sciences. So it is a delight for me personally to be able to benefit from this conference on Islam and to say that Princeton University, through the center and the cooperation of many other programs and departments, is committed to seeing that a conference like this one has lasting value for both students and faculty through our efforts to initiate new courses on religion, through new freshman seminars, through faculty teaching and research efforts, graduate and postgraduate fellowships, and, of course, efforts like this to bring distinguished speakers to the campus. This afternoon's first session is devoted to the topic of Islam and civil society. As a sociologist who studies religion here in the United States, I am keenly aware of the concerns that have been voiced in recent years about the future of civil society, both in this country and in other countries around the world. It is no accident that these concerns have been raised just at the moment when the Cold War was ending. They emphasize changing understandings of democracy and of civic participation, renewed interest in national identity and ethnic rivalries, and they force us to look more deeply than in the past at the continuing role of religion in world affairs and at the challenges presented to civil society by religious differences and diversity. Our speaker and panelists this afternoon bring special distinction and diversity to this topic. Professor Radwan El-Said is currently the Shawaf Visiting Professor at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. He is also Professor of Islamic Studies at the Lebanese University, a position he has held since 1980. Professor El-Said is the co-author of Al-Ijidhad, a quarterly academic journal that publishes articles concerning contemporary Arabic thought and Islamic civilization. He, has, he was previously the editor of Arabic Thought from 1979 to 1985, director of the Institute for Arab Development from 1982 to 1985, Director of the Institute of Islamic Studies in Beirut from 1985 to 1988, 
and again in 1994 through 1999. Professor El-Sayed graduated from Al-Azhar University, Faculty of Theology. He received his Ph.D. in Islamic Studies from Tübingen University in Germany. He is the author of Nation, Community, and Political Power. He is also the author of Community, Society, and State in Medieval Islam. That was published in 1997. Of Contemporary Islam, published in 1987. And Politics of Contemporary Islam, published in 1998. He has edited medieval Islamic texts about cities, statecraft, mirror of princes, and political power. He has also translated books and articles from German and English. Professor El-Sayed has published articles on a wide range of Arabic and Islamic themes, both medieval and modern. Our respondent this afternoon is Mr. Rami Khoury, who is a syndicated columnist and freelance TV and radio host in Amman, Jordan. Gentlemen, we are deeply honored by your presence and look forward expectantly to learning from you. Professor El-Sayed. All the talk about Islam and civil society today is concerned with Muslim societies and their relations in reality with other contemporary societies in the world. Primarily, it is talk about Islam and the West. However, one might understand or perceive the West. At the same time, it is talk about Muslims' relationship with their sacred text and their past and this past experiential reality as it appears in their present consciousness and in the historical and religious literature, old and new. Thus, I see three levels to the problem of civil society in the Arab and Islamic cultural and political context today. The first concern, the first concern the political and cultural discussions taking place in Islamic societies about the problems of modernity and development even though these two are different problems. These discussions attempt to analyze current ideas and behaviors in the sphere of relations between society and the state as they pertain to the modern world. I find this approach to be the most serious attempt to arrive at convincing interpretations and clear conclusions about contemporary phenomena in Arabic and Islamic states and societies. By phenomena, I mean primarily the so-called political and radical Islamic movements and the relation of these with society and political order. The second and third approaches concern the perceptions of contemporary Muslims with all their social groups and divisions of the role of religion and sacredness in their history as well as their current situation. I divide these approaches in two because many contemporary Muslims view the situation as such, meaning they, they return to their religious text as a reference and symbol even when they are going to, inter, to reinterpret it, separating as they do the text and the historical experiences that their societies passed through. After that, 
the texts are used to study these historical experiences and make judgments about them, whether such judgments be praise, criticism, or condemnation. From the conceptual and methodological perspective, I would like to begin with two observations. One, the people who offer these analytical approaches are of the cultural and political elite in our societies. I will not elaborate on the meaning of elite, but it should be recognized that it is important in a detailed study to scrutinize this elite, because from its particularities and problems derive elite perceptions of religion and society, as well as this elite's vision of its own world and role. The elite also maintains distinct, distinct methods of understanding conflict and conflict resolution. The second observation concerns the perception or perceptions of so-called civil society. Without going into details, I suggest that there is no society in the ancient or modern world that is not civil. Notions of civil society carry large ideological connotations, as you know, but I do not see an essential nature for human societies in their relation to religion or political order. Eurocentrism represented through the political and cultural elites in the last two centuries divided the world between civilized and uncivilized societies according to Europe's self-perception. Since sense of uh, to the Europe Europe's self-perception sense of superiority and strategic interests. I believe that those of us at this conference are well informed about the critique of dogmatisms and colonial ideologies in the history of ideas, anthropology, and orientalism. Nevertheless, I am not making a big issue of what happened to the Arabs and Muslims as a result of these colonial perceptions and ideologies. For peoples, for peoples in Africa, Asia, and America have been colonized at one time or another. One sufficient example is what happened with the peoples and societies in East Asia in the last 50 years. Western scholars and politicians spoke about them as societies of patrimonialism and oriental despotism, like Muslim societies in Middle East, Indonesia, India, Central Asia, and all lands of the former Ottoman Empire. But when the East Asians accomplished development and progress in the economic sphere and began to compete and challenge Western economies without changes in their political sphere, the West began to speak about the virtues of trust, self-confidence, and the high ethical principles promoted in Confucian and Buddhist societies. They considered these societies as equal to the so-called Jewish Christian societies with their old democratic tradition. It seems the key in the modern world, in, the, in this changing, changing view, is success or failure in economics, not in religion, history, or style of government. Immediately after September 11, Karen Armstrong asked us Muslims to reclaim Islam from its hijackers. This request was repeated by President Bush and others. However, the Prime Minister of Britain, Tony Blair, called for a return to the modern or mainstream Islam. In reality, these two requests are different. 
Armstrong wants us to undertake a reform movement within, within Islam drawing on modern values. But Blair wants us to go back to the traditional Islam that is known by the majority, majority of the common Muslims. The 20th century has witnessed three major currents within Sunni Islam. The first one is the trend of the traditional Sunni law schools that have dominated since the middle, late Middle Ages, which are known by historians and Orientalists, and which are viewed by many researchers as unchanging due to the closing of the so-called gates of renewal, Babel Ishtihad. This trend is still present to one degree or another in the old Muslim learning institutions. And I say to one degree or another because religious and social traditions do not continue in the same shape except in the imagination, not in reality. We all are familiar with the historian Hobsbawm's notion of invented tradition, which suggests change within continuity, at least in a broad sense and in the consciousness of, the, uh, of, of, of that communities. The second current is the reformist trend that embraces the European idea of progress. It has two goals. It has had two goals. One is the, to bring Muslim ed educational, social, and political systems into great conformity with the progressive European models. The second component or goal of this pro progressive program is to challenge the detrimental elements in the dominant religious traditions concerning worldview, society, the role of women, and the relationship between religion and state. The third trend is the revivalist trend, as I would like to call it. But for 100 years, its exponent called it the Salafi movement, or the trend of the forefathers, Salaf al-Saleh. The revivalists believe the Muslims' dilemma rests not in their backwardness, in the European sense, but in the domination of archaic traditions opposed to correct Islam, to original Islam. The Islam of the sacred text and the time of the Prophet and, his, and the forefathers. In the beginning, the reformers and the revivalists forged an alliance and shared two premises. One, an averseness to Islamic tradition or Islamic traditionalism. The second, a common view of Islamic history. Both groups, the revivalists and the traditionalists, believed Islam to be uh, the revivalists and the reformer believed Islam to be in a long decline that began after the first golden century. Moreover, both groups agreed that Islamic traditionalism became dominant in the centuries of decline. These are the two obvious points of argument, but in fact, there is a third point of commonality that is more important in this context. It is their perception of society. They both view our society as weak and decadent. Thus, it is necessary to change it radically. The reformers saw the weakness in society's lack of Western progressive techniques, while the Salafis saw its decadence in its departure from Orthodox Islam. Thus, both groups hoped for a strong political order that could implement the change. 
Political and social change after the First World War broke this alliance and brought many new elements to, to the situation. The Ottoman Caliphate broke down and the emergence of modern Turkey became a reality. Nation states in the Middle East and everywhere in the Islamic world emerged under the sway of colonialism or colonial powers. The Islamic reformers split over whether to accept these new states or to withdraw from them. The Salafis had their own state with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But the new element, besides the weakness of the reformers or the emergence of the Wahhabi state, was that a newer Islamic revivalism gradually became a popular, a popular movement and, in fact, had weak relations to the original Salafis. The Wahhabi Salafism was an elite movement. Its mind stayed fixed on theological Puritanism, and uh, they have, they have uh, also, uh, till recent time, uh, they accepted this division between, between state and, uh, and, and religion in Saudi Arabia, practically. Whereas the new revivalism represented by the Muslim Brotherhood that appeared in Egypt at the end of the 20s, 1920s, and grew rapidly from there, spread in various forms in the Arabic world, like Al-Jama'a Al-Islamiyya of Mawdoodi in India and Pakistan, at the same time. The enmity against Islamic traditionalism was still present in the new revivalism, but the main concern was struggling against the West and Westernization in its two aspects, modernism and political organization. Due to that, the new revivalism clashed first with Islamic reform thinking because it viewed such thinking as a tool of West, for Western influence in Islamic society. This new revivalism did not clash first with the nation state because its concern was to propagate a pure Islamic identity by transforming society with the Islam of the early period as a model. Islamic revivalism benefited from the same uh, from, from the same circumstances that also served leftist ideologies after the Second World War. The economic and political circumstances of the Second World War brought a new popularity for all radical movements. But the influence of the leftists gradually declined during the decades after the war because of their alliance with the regimes of the so-called free officers, and uh, Arab, Arab and Islamic progressists and in the Arab world and the Islamic, not only in the Arab world, but also in Pakistan, Indonesia, and many African countries. Later, the Islamic revivalists clashed with these regimes of the officers because they became a competing popular movement. They benefited also in their gradual rise from the, rise from the failure of the officers and their being needed in the context of the Cold War uh, they were used by Saudi Arabia against Jamal Abdel Nasser, the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, uh, later used uh, by the uh, Arab and Muslim conservatives in, uh, in Afghanistan because they are being needed in the course of the Cold War and because of the reformers' weakness and their disappearance from the scene. A new scene emerged through the success of the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and the killing of President Sadat by the Islamists in 1981. These events brought the, to consciousness of the world that the revivalist political Islam was in, in ascendancy while the reformist 
Islam was disappearing and the traditional Islam weakening because it could not answer, it, it doesn't have a ready answer, answer uh, to the questions of Arab and Islamic modernity and because of its dependence on the unpopular Arabic and Islamic regimes used and misused by Arabic and Islamic regimes, this traditional Islam with its, with its, with, with its traditional uh, institutions. The competition within Islam or the uh, uh, struggle for the uh, soul of Islam became twofold in last three decades. On one side, it, it was between the revivalists and the traditionalists, and on the other side, it occurred among the revivalists between the so-called moderate revivalists and militant revivalists. And the situation remains about the same through uh, today. Islamic revivalists until the eight, 1980s viewed the society as a holistic unity, having an organic structural relationship between state and society. They thought that they were deriving this picture from the early Islamic period. But in reality, it was the picture of the Arab national state and its self-perception and its understanding of the relation with society as its true representatives and because of that, it is its legitimate leadership. If we consider the theory of God's governorship of Maududi or Sayyid Qutb, we will we will find in it not the picture of the state of Umar ibn al-Khattab, but the state of Ayub Khan or Jamal Abdel Nasser. Islamists were obsessed with the old powerful corporate systems that seized power in Arabic and Islamic countries during the uh, twilight of colonialism. The nation state wanted to lead society by force if necessary toward freedom and progress. The Islamists called such systems despotic, and called for struggle against it to accomplish its down downfall. But their hostility did not come from the power these tyrants enjoyed, but because they used this power to deifying themselves and their systems and in applying human laws. So its goal was to seize these huge powers for the application of Sharia. The state is very important because it can change the, as I said, the identity of the society even. Thus, it is necessary for reattaining the Islamic identity of the society through using the power of the state. Some Islamists like Hassan al-Turabi in the early 80s, 1980s, even were ready to work with the so-called tyrants and despots if they were prepared to apply the Sharia. As we know, Hassan Turabi worked with Numairi. He make him to he, he declared him to the to the uh, 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 commander of the faithful, Amir al-Mu'minin, and he worked as a, a, a justice minister of justice. And uh, with his uh, acceptance or with his uh, 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 that was his idea to uh, killing Mahmoud Muhammad Taha, the idea of Hassan al-Turabi. Of uh, yeah. So the Islamists did not have another view of society and its relation to the state than the so-called progressivists in the 60s and 70s. What happened in their thinking was that they developed an understanding of Sharia, transforming it into a kind of law or codex. 
it became necessary to reattain or protect the Islamic identity of the society through seizing political power and using its immense capacity for the interests of Islam. So they did not think in the 60s and 70s while they were opposing the Arabic and Islamic regimes to call for democracy and human rights. For example, due to this view of society and political power, they were and still are the most harmed group because of the absence of democracy and human rights in the Arabic and Islamic world. From them came the most prisoners, the people who were killed and persecuted by police actions. Sadly, it is interesting to follow the discussions at that time between radical Islamists during the 70s and 80s in Algeria, Iraq, Egypt, and Jordan. There was strong faction in the face of Algeria against participating in the elections because, as they said, you cannot submit the Sharia of court to the approval of the common people. Does it mean that if the Islamists did not take the majority insofar as they are the representatives of God's law, that the people are repudiating Sharia? The same opinion was pronounced by Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman in his epistle against the Egyptian parliament in 1986. It was also stated by the Islamic Liberation Party in, in Jordan, Hezb al-Tahrir al-Islami. It meant a total break with the heritage of Islamic reform and with, the West, with Western political culture. It also meant an unconscious identification with the means and justification used by the totalitarian regimes, which it seems they were struggling against, not for implementing qualitative change, but merely to seize power from them. The scene began to change in the 80s, 1980s, first in Egypt and then in other Arabic and Islamic countries. Islamists split into moderate and radical or mainstream and minority factions, and the split concerned the use of violence. They differed about the question of the belief or unbelief of the society and state. In reality, the division occurred because of the extreme violence that the state u states used against them without differentiating between radicals and moderates. Many of them understood that in the society there are spheres in which they can work with the so-called institutions of civil society, workers' union, and some political parties, some political parties and, 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 uh, uh, and uh, show, social interested groups. Moreover, the Islamic community in Europe and the United States influenced them to reject violence. Last but not least, the Western pro governments at that time during the, 19, the 1980s put pressure on the Arabic and Islamic systems to open. Through self, through these half-hearted openings, the moderate, Islam, moderate Islamists could participate in elections and arrive in parliaments through the recognition of their party or in alliance with other parties. In the question of violence, the moderates said that in the 80s that the conflict with the systems is not about belief or unbelief, but about political conduct. They said that they oppose these systems and criticism. The, the, they, they, they said they opposed these systems and, uh, uh, make, uh, uh, and uh, it must be uh, uh, criticized, but it must not come to a violent conflict conflict, because this is sedition, fitna, and participation in civil strife is forbidden in Islam.
They continued by saying that campaigns in the 1950s and 1960s against them were one-sided in favor of the government and they were only victims. Islamists in Egypt, Jordan, Pakistan, and lately Syria made declarations against violence and in support of pluralism, although they differed over so-called cultural pluralism because it entails the whole identity of the society. They accept and propagate newly the social, religious, and political pluralism. For their acceptance, they bring citations from the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet and from the Muslims' historical experience. Exactly like the 70s, 60s and 70s, but on the contrary, they bring another citations. They, they, in the 60s and 70s, they bring, they brought texts and citations from Quran uh, about the unity of the Muslims, the unity of the society uh, uh, against pluralism, a pluralism. Uh, it was the Islamists in Lebanon, for example, the main opponent to the ta'addudiya uh, they were. Now they, not only now, Egyptians began in the 80s, who now all the so-called moderate Islamists speak uh, speaks about and brings uh, another Quranic texts and Sunnah texts to uh, 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 strengthen it. The Islamists of the mainstream accepted also again in the last two decades the principle of citizenship and the equality of citizens in the state, even though they are of different cultures and religions. But many of them still have reservations about the president of the country and the chief, chief of the army being non-Muslim. They said this is not discrimination, but a political convention like that of many other modern countries in the world. I have just given a brief survey of moderate, moderate Islamism including their changing opinions about state and society in the 1980s and 90s. These opinions clearly show that they are really against violence in their countries and abroad. So there is no direct relation between mainstream Islamists and the jihad groups in the last two decades. They really want to participate in the political process and they accept peaceful and legitimate succession in government. But that does not mean that they left the project of an Islamic state or the application of Sharia. They also do not accept liberalism as a philosophical background of democracy. Even while they accept political pluralism because they understand liberalism as a kind of secularism, which implies a division between religion and state. The Islamization project of state and society is still the view of all Islamic revivalists with the difference between moderates and radicals being that the moderates do not want to apply this project with violence and conflict with regimes and societies. Their Islamization project is the rationale behind the many Islamic constitutions that they published, uh, they published in the many so-called Islamic and many so-called Islamic declarations of human rights. Through these declarations, they want to prove that they have a program, not as a substitute for what exists, like they said in the 60s and 70s, but these declarations allow for participation in the political change in their countries and for opening towards the global community. That is the expression of, uh, of uh, Al-Qaradawr. The Islamists are surely not the only group on the cultural and political scene in the 
Arabic Islamic world, but they are a major, if not the main, faction. In the last 20 years, they have been able to set the agenda in cultural and political spheres. They are present in all strategic issues, even lately in the Palestine question. The problem in their view and project is not the violence, as I stated, but the revivalist and fundamentalist understanding of Islam that transforms, transforms it into a kind of codex or law. They speak of, often about ijtihad, renewal, but the method of authentication, ta'seel, bringing all things to legitimize or illegitimize to the Quran, that the majority of, the, of them, but the method of authentication that the majority of them follow prevents them from benefiting from modern culture and accomplishments. So the problem remains with their world view, a view that has deep suspicions of the world, especially after 50 years of denial of the West and its politics. American behavior and Israeli aggression in the last decade do not encourage the Islamists and nationalists in the Arab world to open. The contacts that exist until the middle of the 90s between the Islamists and many Western countries, including the United States, have not existed for years. And the Arab and Islamic government, and also Russians, Chinese, now Burmese and Filipinos, exploit the war on terrorism to suppress Islamists in the opposition without differentiation, sure, between radicals and moderates. These circumstances they, uh, that will leave big influence on the future of our countries, especially Arab countries, will have a negative effect on the consciousness of the Islamists and their ability to implement renewal and change. Is there a theory of civil society in modern Islam? We can answer yes for modern Islam because the Islamic reformer in the beginning of the 20th century have had a vision of Islamic society and its relation to the state, but this view is weakened and disappeared, not because of revivalist Islamism, but because of the totalitarian regimes in the Arabic and Islamic world of the last five decades. Islamic consciousness began to come out of a period of closure and militancy toward the world and our own societies. But uh, uh, this uh, uh, priority of, uh, of, 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 think, of identity thinking and particularism is still strong. And the context and circumstances that support the totalitarian, totalitarian regimes and the supremacy of the United States do not bode well. Moreover, I do not think that these Islamist conceptions of Islamic identity that prevails among Islamists of all colors will or can overcome itself. It does not have real possibilities for renewal and change. Karen Armstrong, as I said, told us that the solution is a new Islamic reform. Thomas Friedman says that the solution is secularism. But always forget that the power is not in the hands, the uh, political and social power it is not in the hands of the Islamists, but that the main problem is that our Arabic regimes and Islamic regimes and not all the world. Do not see any solution except insecurity thinking, 
Now all the world do not see any solution in treating our societies except in security thinking with the Islamists proper and will and with all other political trends in reality. In the last report of Arabic Human Development, as they called it, they called it Taqrir al-Tanmiya al-Insaniya, what they spoke about uh, uh, early in this morning. They, they did not call it al-Tanmiya uh, al they called it Taqrir al-Tanmiya al-Insaniya. It is, it is, uh, there is a distinction uh, in Arabic between Bashariya and Insaniya, which was, which was commented on by leading Arab intellectuals. There is a strong calling for civil society as a solution, but I do not find in the whole world any society without a state, whether before or after globalization. That is not the leading force in change and development. Let me conclude. I am a religious Muslim and a professor of Islamic studies and an enemy since long time of Islamic fundamentalism. But I say that Islamic reform, Islamic reform is, an, is important and necessary. But what is more necessary is political change and economic development that can give the people in our countries new hope and a new vision of their lives and their possibilities, instead of wondering all the time what the U.S. or Bin Laden will do next. Politi political change and economic development are not in the hands of the Islamists, but in the hands of the dominating regimes and world institutions. And in the end, there are two questions I would like to raise. The first is, why is the state in the whole world is the leading changing force, except in the Arabic sphere, which is detrimental to change and renewal. And second, why, why has only Islamic fundamentalism become a world problem, while fierce and violent fundamentalisms are spreading across the globe and not only within so-called Abrahamic religions? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to follow on from that presentation and um, talk about the world uh, as I know it and see it in the, mainly in the Arab Middle East where, uh, where I live and travel and work. I'd like to thank uh, Princeton University for um, having this meeting and for inviting me and Professor uh, Herbst and Tracy, wherever she is, and thank you for all the good work you've done, and uh, I'm honored to be here. Um, I would also like to, uh, beginning of my talk, to, uh, uh, to remember Saadeddin Ibrahim and his colleagues who are sitting in Egyptian jails. Uh, as, uh, um, I hope the judicial system will run its course and we will not interfere with it, but I think the, uh, the example of the Ibn Khaldun Center uh, people in Egyptian jails today is, is a very sad one, and I think it's, it's something that we must remember all the time and keep working to prevent these kinds of things from happening in the future and to recognize uh, publicly our debt to Saadeddin Ibrahim and many people like him throughout the Arab world who have uh, worked uh, so diligently and so courageously and honestly for the values that most of us, I'm sure, in this room 
share, um, and, um, and it's, uh, the forces working against them are very powerful in the Arab world and in the Western world and other parts of the world, but I think the forces working for them um, are equally strong, and we just need to mobilize them and bring them out into the public. So I would like to just uh, express that publicly and uh, to let uh, Saadeddin Ibrahim and his colleagues know that we think about them often uh, and with great, uh, with great respect uh, and, and a debt uh, to what they have done and continue to do. Uh, but it is about that problem that I would like to talk about the issue of uh, institutions of civil society in the Arab world today. Um, and I'm, I don't like the term Islamic world um, any more than I like the term the Christian world, but I'd like to basically talk about um, the Arab world um, and societies that are predominantly um, made up of individuals who are Muslim, um, of the Muslim faith, Islamic faith. Um, but these are societies that also have uh, people of other religions, Jews and Christians and, uh, and other religions as well. Um, I'm not a, a scholar, as most of you are, but I would like to give my perspective from the day-to-day -day life observations that I do as my work as a journalist and a researcher. Uh, if you take uh, civil society and Islam in a historical sense, I think we can identify historically um, elements of civil society that are very important um, and that are, I think, uh, present in Islam uh, um, or in Islamic cultures historically. And I would identify three of them as being particularly important, uh, participation, pluralism, and accountability. I would think participation, pluralism, and accountability, to me, are the core values that um, define civil society, democracy, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, I think we can see this working in Islamic societies, especially you see it in, in, uh, if you take the Middle East region historically where there was very loose central governance and most people ruled, governed themselves at the city or village or rural level. Uh, and people found ways to have participation, pluralism, and accountability built in. They were designed and manifested differently than they are in Western democratic uh, cultures, but they were certainly there. If you take today in the Islamic countries, um, you look at civil society in modern times now, and you see, I think, a much more complex um, variety of forces at work. Uh, you see the Islamic religion, which is there as a religion and as a value system that defines people's lives. Uh, you have the individual person in these societies. You have uh, civil society organizations and institutions, associations, political parties, non-governmental organizations, schools, all the different institutions, clubs, lobby groups, whatever, that make up civil society. You have the whole European colonial experience, the modern history of the uh, region uh, following the Ottoman rule and then the European era. Then you have the Cold War period, which added a whole new layer of complexity onto these societies. Then you have the um, encounter with Zionism and Israel, which is still going on. The emergence of the modern Arab security state, which is also still going on and very strong and established. And the latest uh, manifestation of uh, these, uh, or the latest addition to these forces, I think, that we have to look at as we consider this situation, which is the uh, a kind of broadly Western-defined globalization, uh, free market capitalism, um, um, issues of um, human rights, uh, democracy, broadly defined by Western experiences, and uh, but spreading uh, uh, throughout the world. Um, 
And so all of these factors have to be looked at together if we're going to say what's going on in civil society in the Islamic world or in Islamic societies. Uh, and I think what I, what I see is that we, we have largely seen the institutions of civil society uh, either contained or, uh, over, or taken over uh, by the state, by the modern Arab state. Um, the, the, the state has largely not wanted a lot of independent civil society institutions, and it has either banned them or so heavily regulated them that they've become ineffective uh, or has actually taken them over, co-opted them. And so you have pretty fascinating situations in some Arab countries. Um, out of courtesy, I won't name individual countries, but um, um, you have situations where you have a national, say, human rights institution that is headed by the wife of the head of state and run, the director is a former head of the intelligence services of that country. I mean, this is uh, quite surrealistic, but this is how things work in the Arab world. You find the leading women's institutions in most Arab countries run or titularly headed by the wife of the king or the president. Uh, so you have this rather overt, clear uh, system whereby the state and the institutions of statehood uh, control or take over the institutions of civil society to, to a large extent, or define them in such a way that you get, for instance, uh, prohibitions against uh, civil society organizations getting foreign money without the permission of the government or not being allowed to engage in political activity. Um, it's quite amazing that you have civil society institutions, women's organizations, human rights organizations, by law prohibited from being involved in political uh, activity, but this is how the modern Arab world, unfortunately, has has evolved. Uh, so, in that context, in this very frustrating context for I think people who are interested in being involved in civil society activities, politics, lobbying, special interest groups, um, associations, professional societies, all, the whole range of environmental protection. Uh, human rights, uh, the whole range of uh, institutions in civil society, people who want to get involved in these fields often get frustrated and either um, uh, give up or they, they, they leave, uh, immigrate some of them if they can, uh, or they just turn off and they decide not, it's just not worth it, and they, or they let themselves be bought out and they, they play the game according to the government's rules. But the interesting thing there, the linkage between civil society and Islam, and presumably given the title of this meeting, the linkage with 9-11 and terror, I think is an important one to, to explore. And the linkage, as I see it, is that Islam as a religion, as an identity, uh, Dr. Srush's talk this morning about the identity issue I think is particularly important and relevant, uh, is that Islam is, has always been there to provide those needs that are either unmet by the state or forbidden by the modern Arab state. And those needs can be simple things like education. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden the Western press is writing about madrasas. Well, you know, these madrasas didn't exist suddenly because people all over the Arab world had this sudden uh, yearning for education for, uh, with a religious bent to it. They existed because the state was not able to provide for people's needs, and therefore uh, the institutions of society uh, stepped in to, uh, to provide them. Um, so you have education, social services, um, 
Uh, Amani Qandil in Egypt estimates that around 14 to 15 percent of health services are provided by Islamist groups. Uh, that's only Islamist groups, and there's other groups in Egypt. Um, there's been an explosion of these groups, by the way, throughout society in the Arab world. Um, the figures vary, but the most reliable ones that I've seen recently show that non-governmental organizations in the Arab world increased from around 30,000 to around 80,000 in the last 15 years or so, or 20 years maybe. And, of course, not all of these are active organizations, but there's a lot of these organizations. Uh, civil society or institutions of civil society are really quite dynamic. Um, at all levels uh, of society. Now, some of them are more effective than others, uh, but they're there, that there's a, there's a, there's a vibrant, thriving uh, civil society, and many of them are providing these basic, in, basic services that the state is not able to provide. But the, the Islam also has always stepped in to provide non-material needs that people have, other than, say, education, health care, social services, or, or money. If you're very poor, you, you get money from the Zakat Fund and other charities. Um, charitable institutions of Islam. Uh, but uh, the Islamic um, religion and identity have always also been there to provide things like hope, uh, simple uh, hope that you feel that your world is going to get better if your world is not very good today, a sense of identity. Um, if you don't identify with the, um, with the piece of geography in which you found yourself after 1920, which many people in the Arab world have trouble doing because that piece of geography was not defined by their own will, um, so you have a sense of identity from your Islamic identity uh, rather than from your state. Uh, a sense of security. Um, if you are not able to get basic security from your state, if there's violence around you, if you're militarily subjected to violence, if you're economically assaulted in terms of corruption and mismanagement and favoritism, if you feel that economically or militarily or security-wise you don't have security, that you get that security from your sense of belonging to this wider uh, group. Uh, and a sense of community and a sense of citizenship, I would argue, are also elements that Islam provides. Uh, it gives people a feeling that they have a voice, uh, that they can express themselves uh, through the vocabulary of their religion and their identity in a manner that is not open to them through the structures of their political processes. Um, and if you look at all of those things, you could say all of those things, in fact, also define the civil rights movements and the churches and Martin Luther King in the United States in the 1950s. So this is not about Islam. This is about religion. It's about people fighting oppression and subjugation and denial and marginalization and pauperization. Um, it is people who are saying that they refuse to be invisible people. They refuse to be subjugated by their own societies. They will fight back with the tools that are available to them. If, if the redressive grievance is not available to them through the political process, they will turn to their God and to their religion. And Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference did it in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. Bishop Tutu and the people of South Africa did it in, in the 1980s and 90s. And people in the Islamic countries take apart the small group of terrorists. The vast majority of Muslims in Islamic societies are also turning to their religion for these same sorts of uh, elements that are important to them, that are, they feel are their basic human rights of identity, of a voice, of protection, of security, of community, of a sense of citizenship, uh, of a means of holding uh, leaderships accountable. Um, and the Islamic uh, religion and Islamic values and civilization have provided these to much 
much greater ex extent, I think, than they do in, uh, in Christian, uh, Christian religion and, and Christian societies. So there's been a kind of a tension in many ways throughout society between the uh, state uh, and uh, the uh, role of uh, Islam or Islamic institutions or Islamic organizations in civil society. But at the same time, it's important to remember that Islam and religion are only one of a variety of elements in society, um, whether it's civil society or broadly, more broadly defined. Uh, Islam is only one of many forces that are active and credible in society, uh, forces that people turn to to achieve those uh, rights and aspirations that they feel uh, they should have, whether it's material development or a sense of identity or a sense of security and a better future. And if we look at the situation in the, uh, again, the Arab world, which I know best, but this could apply further afield, but in the Arab world, we had a situation that was basically frozen for about half a century because of the Arab-Israeli conflict, because of the Cold War, because of the uh, oil boom, because of other reasons. We had essentially a frozen political situation internally in most of the Arab countries between 1950 and, 19, um, uh, and the 1980s. I mean, there was a couple of coups here and there, but the average life of the average person didn't change very much in most of the Arab countries. But in the middle of the 1980s, when the foreign exchange reserves in most of the Arab governments started to fall below the line they needed to maintain the uh, welfare state policies, they felt the governments had to liberalize. So they were forced to liberalize, and they started holding elections and opening up the systems and democratizing to an extent. And it was, I think some of it was serious, other parts of it were not, but there, were, there was a clear uh, uh, stream of, of relaxation of state control in many Arab countries. You had elections starting in 1986 in Sudan and then through many Arab countries, and many of the elections were relatively free, and of course they gerrymandered the system, and uh, they, so there was a certain built-in gerrymandering process to ensure that you wouldn't, people wouldn't get too far uh, out of hand as they did in Algeria and when the Islamists won, and then they just completely canceled the elections. But in most Arab countries, they were more subtle. They didn't need to let it get to the point where you could actually get a majority elected that would change the system. They gerrymandered the system so that you could get significant expression of protest votes for opposition parties, which you had in almost every Arab country, Jordan, uh, Yemen, um, um, uh, Morocco, Kuwait, uh, most of the Arab countries that had relatively free elections had a strong expression of a desire for change. And after that process got going in the 80s and early 90s, we saw for the first time, I would say probably maybe since the, I don't know, the Ayyubid Mamluk period, maybe in half a millennium, for the first time we could see, we could hear the voices of ordinary Arab people expressing themselves and more or less expressing through elections, through political parties, through newspapers. There was a burst of pent-up energy that had been wanting to express itself through political activism, political participation, civil society, uh, that finally burst through in the 80s and in the mid-80s to the mid-90s. So you had places like Jordan where you had 30 political parties established, and Yemen where you had 30 new new newspapers and Sudan and this extraordinary uh, kind of explosion of uh, civic society and political activism. Um, and um, the interesting thing is the two things I think were particularly interesting. One, 
uh, is that this showed, up, showed us the pent-up desire for people to express themselves, and it showed a tremendous variety of viewpoints, which I'll explain in a minute. But the other interesting thing, and sad but interesting and important, is that despite this almost universal expression of a desire for change in the Arab countries, uh, expressed through elections and other political means, there was no significant change in any of the policies of any of the Arab governments. So you had, uh, you had democratization with uh, democratic, relatively democratic elections, a clear desire for change expressed through Islamism or Arab nationalism or leftist parties or civil society, democracy, human rights groups, expressed in many different ways, uh, even tribal politics sometimes. And, uh, but, but nowhere was this uh, desire for change that was expressed through the political system translated into actual changes of policies by the incumbent government. And nowhere did you get an actual change of government uh, in any of these Arab countries through a political process. So you had, um, you had uh, the, the form of democratic participation without the substance. And you, this is what I call oriental democracies, that we have these oriental democracies where we have the trappings of democracy. You have parties, you have legislatures, you have elections, you have lobby groups, you have uh, press people arguing in the press. Uh, you have all the forms and structures of democracy, but you don't have any of the substance of democracy, which is a peaceful transfer of power from one group to another in an orderly fashion, uh, reflecting the will of the, of the majority and the consent of the governed. Uh, but still, we could see this process evolving in the 80s and 90s, and I think what we've seen since then is a very widespread range of identities that were expressed. Unlike other countries where you might talk of a marketplace of ideas, we actually have a marketplace of identities, I think, in the Arab countries. And Islam is one of those identities, and it's one of the strongest ones, but it's not the only one, and it may not be the main one even. We don't really know. But I would argue that what we can see now in the Arab world, uh, and probably in other places as well, is you have, I would mention, six main forces that I see competing in society, in civil society, and in countries where the system is a bit more open, like Lebanon, uh, Jordan, uh, Yemen to an extent, Egypt to an extent, Morocco. You can see it in, in the countries that are a little bit more open. You see this competition more clearly. And there are six forces that I think define societies uh, right now. Uh, one of them is state nationalism, the modern state. So Jordan, Syria, Egypt, uh, waving the flag. The second one is Islam, which is a very powerful one, and we've seen it manifested in many ways. The third one is Pan-Arabism, or Arabism, which is still there and keeps emerging and keeps raising its head, and who knows how strong or weak it is, but clearly it's, it's still there and expressing itself. The fourth one is the tribal or ethnic identity. And when I mean tribal, I mean sort of blood relations. So when tribes can be as big as 50 or 100,000 people or as small as, as an extended family of uh, 600 people, but blood relations. And these are clearly a powerful player in, in many Arab countries. Um, the fifth one I would call a market globalization, These uh, the forces of the marketplace. People who are basically... In, 
and not expressing any kind of political or ethnic or religious identity or state identity, but who are who look at the globalization uh, of their own market and the global market as the means of their own security and identity and prosperity and well-being in the future. And the sixth one is that a group of uh, people who work for issues like human rights, uh, civil society, democracy, uh, these kinds of uh, modern political uh, ideas. And if you take all of those things together, I think you find that the weakest one is actually the democracy, human rights, civil society element, and the two strongest ones are Islam and ethnic or tribal identity. Uh, that's my uh, analysis, um, and you see this uh, everywhere. And it's interesting, if you look around the Arab world, uh, you see different countries that have had very different experiences. One, you have countries that had relatively peaceful uh, political transformation or liberalization. Uh, again, Jordan is an example. Kuwait, uh, well, Ku I mean, Kuwait, of course, with the 90 occupation and liberation, but the Kuwait's political history, Jordan, others who gradually uh, moved without too much violence, <coughs> internal violence, um, uh, ended up with democratization led to retribalization of society, that the tribal element and the Islamic element became the two strongest one. And then you had other societies that completely fell apart, like Somalia or Lebanon at various stages, or Yemen, uh, and they also ended up with a combination of Islamism and tribalization. And it's very interesting that whether through peaceful democratic transformation or whether the to total collapse of the modern state, the end result is the same people turn back to their Islamic and their tribal ethnic identities because they are the identities that give them security and, um, and, and the hope for the future. Um, and with the state basically uh, co-opting or preventing the emergence of, of viable civil society institutions and non-governmental organizations, these other forms of identity are always going to come to the fore. And I think if you ask the question, oh, what is the linkage between all this stuff and 9-11 and terror, uh, I think the linkage is pretty clear uh, that in the modern Arab world, with the absence of a sustained democratic transformation and the emergence of strong, credible, viable civil society institutions and non-governmental organizations and political parties and all of these groups that work in civil society, you're dealing with tremendous pent-up frustration within society, and at the first level, people will turn to these other identities, to their religion, to their tribal uh, identity, to their regional identity, to pan-Arab identity, to other identities. They'll turn to these other alternative identities, they're not alternative, but parallel identities, uh, for uh, succor and for a sense of uh, security and well-being for the future. And if that still doesn't bring them a redress of grievance, then small groups of people in the end will, will turn to criminality and terrorism. And I think the, the really uh, problematic thing for me um, is, that, um, is that I look back over my own lifetime and I look at my father's lifetime and I look at my children's lifetime and I'm really uh, uh, angered by the fact that three generations of my family have still not had any significant chance to address the big issues that define our lives. The last three or four generations of Arabs 
have grappled with a series of fundamental uh, issues of challenges to the individual, to the family, to the community, to the state, and these issues are no more resolved today than they were when my father was born uh, about 85 years ago. And I would mention these challenges as, first of all, independence. Very few Arab countries have come to grips with their independence in any meaningful and secure way. Uh, the second one is citizenship. I don't think very many Arab countries have defined the rights and responsibilities and roles of, of, of a citizen, and I don't think many citizens of Arab countries clearly understand what it is that they're entitled to and what uh, they're supposed to do. Material development uh, is a huge problem. Even though we've made major advances in the Arab countries, if you look at immunization, if you look at primary education in many countries, access to health care and clean water, there's been some really significant gains made in many parts of the Arab world. But broadly speaking, material development um, has stalled for the last 15 years. Um, and in many cases it's uh, declining. The fundamental national configurations of most of the Arab countries are still not clear, neither to their own people uh, nor to uh, external powers. Um, what is the relationship between uh, Lebanon and Syria? What is the relationship between uh, North and South Sudan? What is the relationship between North, Central, and Southern Iraq? What is the relationship between the two Yemens? Uh, what is the relationship between Palestine and the, and the world? These are fundamental issues of national configuration which still have not been uh, resolved or even addressed in many cases. The basic issue of governance is one that most of the Arab countries have not addressed or resolved in any significant way and not even have brought up as a question for, uh, for legitimate debate in most Arab countries. We haven't even been able to talk about what kind of governance systems uh, we want. Uh, and this is still an issue of great contention. The relationships between secular and, and religious values is an issue that, uh, that uh, many people in the Arab world would like to discuss but have not been able to in public. Uh, the relationship with Israel and Zionism is a challenge that we've dealt with for well over 75 years and still haven't figured out if we're going to make war or make peace with them. Uh, and finally, the relationship with uh, the foreign powers further afield is an issue that continues to plague us and continues to plague some of the foreign powers uh, now, especially with September uh, 11. So it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary and shocking to me that these most basic issues of one's identity, existence, material well-being, and future aspirations, your rights as an individual, your identity as a state, your relationship with your society, with your government, with your world, with your neighbors, the most fundamental issues that define us have not only not been resolved, but in most cases have never been seriously and publicly addressed in any kind of forum uh, within the Arab countries that gives their people a chance to talk about these issues in a serious and constructive way. So we have the unfortunate situation where a report like the UNDP report has to be published in New York by the UNDP rather than being published in the Arab world by Arab institutions. Amen. Huh? In Jordan. Well, I mean, it was physically published in Amman, but it was, it was produced by the United Nations. And, and, but it should be produced by the different Arab countries. So this is, I, I have great respect for the report. It's a very good report. I'm just saying that these kinds of reports and these kinds of issues should be raised within Arab institutions within our countries. Uh, and unfortunately, they're not. And when they are, you end up with people 
who either get thrown in jail or are forced to immigrate or have to hold human rights conferences in Cyprus and other places. So there's a great problem with even raising these issues in most of our countries. And I think the, it, it's, a, it's a terrible irony that because the many of the people in the Arab world were not able or given the opportunity to develop their own civic society institutions to promote their own development, that the cruel irony is that the terrorists who attacked the United States actually used the civil society institutions of Europe and North America, the, the mosques and the clubs and the universities and the other civil society institutions of Western society to plan and organize and undertake their attack against the United States. So I think we've got a real dilemma in terms of the need to look at civil society and democracy in a broad a much broader term in the Arab countries and other uh, countries with predominantly Islamic, uh, with predominantly Muslim populations, though I can really only speak about, uh, about the Arab countries. And uh, the dilemma is that while there is great opposition to or concern about many of the fundamental forces in our societies, there's also great acquiescence and passivity. And it's, this is one of the puzzles that I think uh, we need to address. Why is it that if there is such widespread discontent in our societies, why is it that we don't have these revolutions and uprisings like the people of Iran did uh, and others? And I think this is a really tough nut to crack. Uh, and I think what we need is much more open, uh, honest, uh, and comprehensive analysis within the Arab world and with our colleagues from, uh, from different other parts of the world, as we're doing here, uh, to, look at, uh, to look at this situation. It may be that the vast majority of people in the Arab world find their situation is acceptable, that there are pressures economically and they are grieved because of the lack of democracy and their lack of inability to express themselves, but they're not so, uh, so dehumanized or so degraded that they must engage in a revolution that they can basically put up with the situation because marginally they're getting benefits that are important to them like education and clean water and a passport and ability to travel and things of that nature. But I think it's important to realize, and I'll finish on this point, it's important to realize that while there is widespread discontent and at the same time there is a kind of acquiescence in this order, there are small groups of people who have emerged from the last 15 years of, uh, of expressions against Arab regimes, against Israel, against the United States, against injustices in our own societies. There are small groups of individuals who have emerged and uh, conducted uh, terrorism. So our societies are emerging as an environment uh, from which small groups of terrorists have emerged. Um, many of them have been attacking our own societies for many years in the Arab world, and some of them now have started um, attacking uh, Western societies. So I think there is a clear linkage among the um, lack of civil society institutions or the lack of credible civil society institutions, uh, the uh, passive state of democratic transformation, uh, the widespread sense of uh, aggrievement and even uh, humiliation that even verges on, I would say, dehumanization in many Arab countries. Uh, and dehumanized people in the end act like dehumanized people. They act like animals and they engage in criminal acts of terrorism, which are acts of dehumanized, uh, crazed 
criminal people. Uh, but these people did, do not emerge from a vacuum. Uh, they did not suddenly emerge from the Arab world and start uh, doing terror. There is a process, I think, by which we reach this point, and I think we need to understand it together and somehow work together to, to turn, it, uh, turn it around. And the main thing to do, I think, is the, the single most important thing to do is to make sure that people in Arab and Islamic societies in Asia and the Middle East, wherever they may be, are given the opportunity first and foremost to express themselves, to speak freely, to say what they want, to say who they are, to say what they aspire to, um, and to manifest their own humanity uh, in a democratic process that they can define according to their own uh, values. And if it's a Shura Council or if it's, if it's a tribal confederation or if it's a Pan-Arab Jamboree, whatever they want to do, let them do it as long as it's done in a peaceful, dignified manner according uh, to their own desires. So I think critically important is the need to keep pushing for uh, space in which people can express themselves, talk together uh, in the Arab countries to get this process uh, uh, moving again so that we can gradually transform ourselves uh, into the societies that we know we can become and that we know we, we, d we were at several times in history in the early Bronze Age and the Neolithic period and the classical period and the early Islamic period when we led the process of globalization and technological development and scientific discovery and the quest for common human uh, universal values so we can uh, contribute to that process again and I think civil society is one of the important uh, starting points for that. Thank you very much. We're going to open it up for questions and comments from the audience now. Uh, do we have someone to bring a microphone? Yes, here comes the microphone. Right, down, down here first. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy with the presentation of both uh, members of the panel. I just want to make a comment and I raise a question, uh, especially with regard to the presentation of the last speaker. I think the way you analyze Arab society in many ways correspond with many of the findings that have been put forward in recent times by anthropologists, sociologists, and political scientists looking at the Middle East. Uh, I think you are quite correct in identifying these contending forces that exist in the Arab world. You find parallels in other third world countries. What is remarkable is the fact that the persistence of tribalism in spite of urbanization and in spite of Islam. And I think this whole idea of uh, asabiya, which is very strong in certain Arab societies, particularly in the, uh, in the Gulf region, uh, and you see that in Saudi Arabia, the struggle between asabiya, tribalism on one side, and Islamia. So that tension is going on. And this is where I think the Arab societies, in many ways, are fundamentally different in terms of their response to modernity and urbanization when we compare and contrast what happened in France and other parts of Europe historically. Because I want to look at it historically. The question I want to put to you now, and I think your colleague can also respond to that, 
given the fact that the most emotionally and psychologically empowering aspects of human life in the Arab world comes mainly from Islam, which address the, the dunya as well as the akhirah issue. Something that in the West is completely mute because of secularization has created in Western society a rearrangement of mental furniture, which for the Westerner. Philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. Now, in the Arab, they are rearranging their mental furniture. But among the pieces in their mental furniture, tribal concepts, Islamic concepts are still important. To what extent do you think state nationalism, be it Saudi, Lebanese, Syrian nationalism, or pan Arabism, or Islamism, we try to really take up from many African countries. Of looking at yourself as an individual, as a member of a trade union, as a member of a university, to the point that your loyalties can be budgeted. In the Arab world, there is limited budgeting of emotions and psychic energies. So the rearrangement of mental furniture has to be done. How, how is the rearranging of mental furniture taking place? Well, I, I really think it's a very simple equation. I think most people are not, they, most people do not think in, in sort of religious or ideological terms. They think in basic human terms. You know, the average person wants to be treated with dignity and fairness and to have a chance to live a good normal life. If they're denied that, then they're going to turn to their religion and to their tribalism and to their whatever other elements they can uh, turn to to help them um, achieve those goals and to help them stop the indignities that they feel are, they're being subjected to. So I think the problem is that the, we've simply never given the Arab people on the wide scale a chance to express themselves very clearly. We had a period in the 30s when you had things in Egypt and maybe in parts of Syria and other places. You had There was elements of um, uh, modern development and history was running its course, but then it was all frozen in the 40s and 50s, and we, we haven't had a chance for the Arab people to really express themselves or develop the kind of political institutions that would allow them to, um, to, um, to develop modern societies. I don't like the use of the term modernity. I think this is culturally loaded and morally and politically unfair. I think we are extremely – if you define modernity as a series of values – uh, based on issues of equality and tolerance and pluralism and respect and hard work and education and respecting the laws, then everybody I know in the Arab world is a very modern person. Uh, but our institutions of statehood are, are primitive. That's the problem with this. It's not the culture, it's not the people, it's not the religion, it's the, the political history that we've been subjected to, primarily by our own, uh, our own uh, forces. I mean, Israel, the U.S., Europe, you can talk about them, but the real problem is our own in, in, internal situation. So I think the, the question is simply giving the people a chance and our, giving the, the Arab citizen a chance to express themselves, and they will develop, I think, perfectly uh, 
uh, fine societies. They might have an Islamic element in them. They might have a tribal one. They might have a pan-Arab one. Now you're going to get globalization and all these other elements. Uh, but I think we just have to let that process uh, run its course. And if you get Islamic groups who win elections, then they should rule. Uh, they should be given the chance to rule. And if they don't rule well, then built-in accountability processes within Islamic culture and, and modern Arab uh, tribal values will uh, demand uh, change. And you can see it taking place in Iran in a very, very impressive way uh, right now. But it's a slow process. Uh, it takes time. And, uh, you know, it took the Western world 800 years to go from the Magna Carta to the French Revolution. We've only been doing this for about 15. So, we, you know, we need a little bit more time to give these uh, countries and these people a chance to, you know, define them themselves. Do you want to comment on that, too? I want to comment about other point related to it. We speak about uh, Islamic liberalism as if it is a venture to reform Islam. And that is the problem uh, now. Uh, so it is understand, understood. Uh, we have to uh, uh, make devotion for an Islamic reform. So it will be liberal politics and other things. I, I think it is uh, not quite correct. There's two uh, different things. It is not correct to interpret all these uh, so-called Islamic awakening, al-Sahwa al-Islamiyya, through political interpretation. But what in all religions, for uh, uh, Islamic religion, uh, Islamic religion uh, the, these are uh, religions of uh, textual uh, sacred texts, there is all the time fundamentalists and revivalists movements. And in Islam, since medieval times, there is a, a medieval movement, many medieval movements, uh, uh, revivalist movements, who uh, go back to that, uh, all the time they go back to the text, and uh, they have this literal uh, uh, interpretation of the text. But they were in no time the mainstream. Why they are working the role of the mainstream now, even they are not the mainstream, but they are working, the revivalist Islam is working, is taking the role of the mainstream. Why? I mean, here there is political circumstances. Because this revivalist Islam, for the first time, is, uh, became a state politics uh, 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 in the 60s, they have been used by, uh, uh, against Arab nationalist states by Saudi Arabia, in the Cold War by Saudi Arabia and conservative governments, uh, 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 conservative governments in the Arab and Islamic world were in alliance with the United States and Western world. They have been used uh, against uh, the nationalist uh, uh, anti-colonialist in the, in the Arabic and Islamic world. And in the 80s, they have been used uh, uh, with all means in Afghanistan, also uh, uh, in the uh, circumstances of the Cold War. Their strength, they became or they played the role of the mainstream because of that. But I am not saying that uh, 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 then it is not related to other things. First, that doesn't mean that the political circumstances are 
the rationale behind the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. I mean, fundamentalism is a movement, is existent in all times, but it is not the main uh, stream. It is now mainstream because of political circumstances, or what became. The second thing, Islamic reform will not bring, if it comes, it is not, uh, it is not uh, uh, present now, but if it, it comes, when, when, when we uh, read or reread re against the Islamic texts, in liberal uh, means, it means we, uh, we will do the uh, uh, contrary what, of, of what the uh, Islamists did in the last uh, 30 uh, uh, years. That what we did also, the, we, are, we are the adversary of fundamentalism in the Arabic and Islamic world in the last 20 years. They made a disputation uh, 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 with these uh, Arab fundamentalism uh, of, uh, uh, of the idea that uh, why they will uh, own Islam, they take Islam alone. It is the, 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 the religion of all of us. Why shall their, uh, their inflation be the correct one? But it is a disputation, a disputation career and, and, and tool, and it is not really an Islamic reform. Islamic reform has also nothing to do, not much to do with the political process, and it will not bring liberalism if we comment, made another convention, made deconstruction of the sacred Quranic uh, texts or another interpretation of uh, Islamic history. I mean, it is a very big issue. We must do it as, as, as scholars. But the uh, 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 intermingling between politics and religion, what, what the Arabic state, Arabic and Islamic states on one side and the Islamists on the other side uh, did in the last 30 years, uh, uh, it Brought, the, brought these problems now. We, can, we cannot, through reform Islam, uh, it is not the medicine, uh, liberal reading of Islam for the problems, for the uh, political and social problems, or for so-called Islamic terrorism or so. Here is the job of the politicians, of civil society, of, uh, of uh, 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 human and uh, economic developments in Arabic and Islamic world. Uh, the people have another expectation, have another future, another visions. It is very important to make Islamic reform, but we shall not uh, change it with, with, with political change or, or with democratic uh, work for change. It is the work of theologians and scholars and uh, elites uh, to dispute and to uh, reinterpret and uh, to comment on these old texts what we are doing all the time in Orientalism and uh, in, in, in uh, 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 Islam, Islamic, in, in political and Islamic uh, studies in the Arab world and in the, in the whole world. Uh, uh, that is so. So that's what I tried to uh, to say here in the in my uh, in my uh, comment on Islam and civil society. The Islamists has as a political movement, as a political Islam, ha they have a vision now, conservative vision or revivalist vision of of, of civil society. But 
as a one group in these in the in the emerging uh, political groups of the uh, of the arab and islamic world they are they, like the uh, central conservative in the United States or, the, or European politics, not more and uh, uh, not less. It is not this so-called liberal Islam. It, it is non-existent. It will not be in religious and cultural mean. On long, long term, maybe if we have a liberal or so-called liberal interpretation of Islam, it may, it may be uh, make an influence of politics. Today it is really intellectual and political uh, things what we have to do and uh, in the Arab world and what is, what is also important for our friends and uh, the people who are uh, looking uh, uh, for us uh, in, the, in the whole world and uh, thinking what, what they can help us, what they can uh, also see our, our problems in, in other eyes. It is not to mix between reforming Islam and reforming Arabic and Islamic politics. Thank you. There were several hands up here in the middle. Sir, did you still want you do behind? No. No, no, you don't. Okay, we'll go to you and then you, I think, we're next, and we'll see how our time is. Uh, thank you very much. I, for years I have been intrigued by the fact that uh, many Arab and Muslim intellectuals would start by asserting that we have a civil society and then the, almost the rest of the argument, and this is not Rami Khouri, I'm talking about you know, in general trend, the rest of the talk is uh, one that asserts so many restrictions that if they actually existed, then a functional civil society could not have existed. This is, for instance, what led my friend Yahya Sadowski to write a paper uh, under the title, Is This Society Civil? And not because he was denying the civility uh, or the, the, the civilizational content of the Egyptian society at that time, but because the argument was there must be certain criteria or indicators by which uh, we can identify whether uh, a society has, a civil society has emerged or in the process of emerging uh, or, or not. And in many cases in, in these countries, the state is the major violator of that civil society. But in, in some cases, some who claim to belong to that civil society violate these rules. When you have Sheikh Ghazali, for instance, after the, the murder of my friend Farag Foda, attesting that this is permissible because the state didn't do this and the state didn't do that, and lots of others from that trend, that current, supporting that. I am saying, I mean, we, we have to ask ourselves, are, there, are the general criteria for evaluating civil society's existence and the conditions conducive for its existence applicable to that part of the world that we are discussing or not? And if not, what are the Islamic alternatives uh, to those so-called generalized criteria? Thank you. Could we get another question in before we have responses? I think you were next. Hi, I had a question um, to uh, 
to Mr. Khoury, I wanted to know generally about the impact of the West. And in talking about, um, talking about that, what, what in your view, uh, to what extent in your view can the West facilitate the emergence of an eventual civil society, uh, civil societies throughout the West, uh, throughout the Arab world? And to what extent um, can, it, can the West actually hinder the emergence of, of uh, the civil societies? Uh, I, I'm interested in that because I'm wondering how you would evaluate as well current Western policies in that regard. Um, I agree with everything Brahim Karawan said, so I thank you for his comments. Um, Oh, Brian. We're going to get one, oh, sorry. one more question. Okay. Down. Yeah, it follows. Thank you. Um, my name is Dawn Chatty from the University of Oxford. And my question is nearly, I should say, the other side of the coin of the young lady just uh, uh, immediately before. Again, it's about the issue of, or the question of, Really, what is civil society and how are we defining it? Um, it seems to me that we, we um, have, have missed or uh, haven't really put enough attention to um, a short comment which Professor Radwan uh, Al-Sayed made a little bit earlier in his presentation concerning the way in which when Asian economies uh, proved to be successful, then uh, there began to be um, a, a, a discussion as to, well, what elements in civil society were really necessary because we're talking about different forms of civil society, quite, quite different from what I'll call the Western liberal model, um, Protestant model, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, in some, in, in earlier part of your presentations, I think um, we were hearing that uh, the, certainly the, um, the Arab world, Islamic societies have various forms of civil societies that are different. Uh, but then at other times we're hearing that, um, well, perhaps they don't represent the kind of Western model we have today. And my question, if I just uh, can be as specifically as I can, I'm just wondering whether we shouldn't be looking a little bit more carefully at contemporary history at the last 50 years and considering how much the West, the United States and Europe have had a part to play in developing um, civil society, let me say, in the state of Israel, but in the Arab states where security and armament in order to um, maintain a kind of a status quo came to the fore, that there was very little effort from the West to help develop um, it, the civil society as it's understood in the West, and that perhaps we should be looking to um, questioning what can the West do now to try and encourage the development of certain kinds of associations of people that lead to greater participation, uh, perhaps to greater transparency, uh, and to various forms of organization, which may not be exactly like the models we have in the West, but would be developed out of the, their cultural context. Well, I think the uh, situation is one in which the whole debate about civil society in recent years, say in the last 25 years or so, has been very much defined by the West. Um, and there's a big body of literature. So, but basically, I mean, what we, what I mean by civil society is, is, uh, as I think, um, 
uh, Dick Norton calls it associational life or something like that, or basically people working together, getting together in groups to work for issues in society that they believe are important uh, without the interference of the state. All that space between the government and the family is civil society where people can engage, and that includes business and uh, law and politics and everything else. Um, the West has very much uh, influenced uh, this situation by its policies of the last 50 years or so, which uh, have largely been to maintain the status quo in the region, which largely has dampened uh, the natural dynamism of civil society. But you still have it emerging, and I, I said there's a very rich civil society, which I think there is, but I think it's kind of different. It's a, it's a different kind of civil society than you get in the traditional European or North American sense of lawyers' associations and political parties. And I think you get more sort of community groups. And the civil society is often linked to tribal and religious institutions. The most credible uh, non-governmental organizations are the ones that tend to have patronage from either religious or um, tribal leaderships in the Arab countries, as broadly speaking. Um, there are others maybe, but generally if you've got uh, tribal ethnic groups or religious groups supporting you or leading the NGOs or associations, they tend to be the ones that are most um, credible. So I think the West can have a big uh, impact. I mean, our tradition, of course, is much older than the Western tradition in terms of, of civil society. And uh, if you go back, um, even if you want to go back to second millennium uh, BC, Mesopotamia, to look at um, how institutions worked in terms of business and the application of laws and things like that and association life, you can go way back in our region historically and find examples of civil society. But clearly, we're dealing with the world today, and then the rules have changed, and the, the West basically defines the rules of the game. Um, and I think the West should get involved. I don't have a problem myself in Western or other governments uh, getting involved in our societies uh, as long as they do it according to uh, rules that we work out together. If we can agree together what is what kind of human rights laws should be promoted around the world, say through the UN Charter or something like that, and we agree on what is good and what is not good, then I have no problem if Western governments use their aid to punish Arab or Asian or South American governments that deny human rights to their people and to support governments that promote human rights. I don't think, I don't, if we can, and that's, I think, a pretty modern view to have a universal set of values that apply to all people, then that's something that we should work for. The main criticism that you get of the West and particularly of the U.S. or the previous colonial powers in Europe was the double standard. It's the double standard argument. The main criticism is not that the West, Western values are bad. The main criticism is that Western values are inconsistently applied and a UN resolution is, is pushed for one Arab country, but it is not pushed, say, for Israel or for Turkey or for somebody else. So there is this problem of inconsistency in the application of these values and laws, and that's, I think, where we should really work together. And, and I think this is an opportunity. September 11, despite the tragedy, was also an opportunity for the world to re-engage on a global value system uh, to redefine the UN Charter and the Declaration of Human Rights um, and to, to allow America maybe for the first time to enter modern world history and to stop being so isolated
regulated, but I think the United States government, for some reason, decided to pass on it this time, and we're engaged in a very different kind of dialogue or, or relationship now between the U.S. and much of the rest of the world. And it's not the Islamic world, it's the rest of the world that is critical now of the United States. Um, so I think this is, we have two real challenges. One is the challenge of terror emerging from certain uh, Middle Eastern and Asian societies. Uh, the other challenge is the projection of American power around the world. They're unrelated, but they're parallel uh, issues that need to be dealt with on a global scale. Did you want to comment on that or not? No. no I will comment on uh, general, but if you... Yeah, okay. I can, I can. Okay. Well, can since, you're, since you're over there, why don't, why don't we go to the young man back there? No, the, the man here. Yeah. Before. Okay. Um, I guess this question is for, um, I guess, anybody who wants to answer it. Um, you spoke of, I guess, having a stronger civil society in uh, specifically the Arab world, and I guess a little bit uh, admirably of the Iranian revolution um, and how that uh, resulted maybe slowly in a stronger civil society. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that before you have, um, I guess, an um, overthrow of a government or um, a further democratization, you need a stronger civil society. And other people, as you guys um, have said today, that you need a different type of government, a different type of state ruling to have the ability to grow a stronger civil society because there are so many restrictions. What do you propose as a remedy for w what is happening right now in the Islamic world in terms of suppression of the press, um, you know, uh, freedom of assembly, um, having human rights activists or in jail? Do you propose there to be um, a type of revolution similar or akin to that in Iran? Um, so that would happen in Saudi Arabia, to propose that the West, you know, led by the United States, go into countries such as Iraq and democratize the Arab world? Or do you propose there uh, simply be stronger institutions that will eventually, sometime in the future, result in some type of change of, I guess, general Arab society? Yes. effect of 9-11 in the Arab world generally, and more specifically in thinking about Islam. Uh, as a background to that, uh, could I make a comment, uh, which is that it seems to me that historically, and I think going right back to the time of the Prophet himself, uh, Islam has been a religion that measured itself very much in terms of the success of the community uh, in many different centuries, different ways of measuring the success of a community. But it has been, a, I, I would have said, uh, a consistent point in Islam. So when the community is not a success in one way or another, either measured against uh, other parts of the world or measured in internal uh, problems and breakdowns, there is a problem for Islam. 
Now, I think this is part of what uh, is happening now. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, my friend Sardin Ibrahim. I mean, this is, it's very hard, I would have said, from the applause in the audience, for a lot of the uh, Muslim world to take pleasure in what happened over that or to think it's a good thing. They must think that there's a, a real problem. And it's surely the same sort of problem, nothing to do with Sardin, but, but again, opposition to the powers that be that lay behind a good deal of the uh, feeling that led to the terrorism on 9-11. Well, I go back to my question is, what has been the effect of 9-11 in the Arab world and specifically on thinking about Islam? Uh, It is... uh your question is good because uh, it brought uh, me to uh, a connotation. Revivalist Islam, the higher uh, in traditional Islam, the higher authority is for so-called consensus of community. In this essential point, uh, the revivalist Muslims differ with it. The uh, 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 virtual higher authority in revivalist Islam is for Sharia as a codex, not for the community who uh, 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 in the uh, in historical uh, means. Because of that, they could make a so-called constitution, Islamic constitution and so. We know the problem of Pakistan in the 50s. They could not write a so-called Islamic constitution. Uh, while we have now about uh, 50 uh, different so-called Islamic constitutions, uh, 50 different uh, uh, declarations of uh, Islamic declarations of human right. That, that is the politics, politics of identity. Who uh, 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 not uh, 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 it is not confined to Islam. Uh, or to Islamic revivalism. In all the revivalisms, we have this problem of uh, 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 codifying the uh, principles and uh, apply and try to apply it to the, uh, the reality because of a, a peculiar and particular consciousness of these notions and concepts and perceptions. Uh, uh, going back to the uh, question of, uh, of uh, Mr. Karawan about Islamic alternative, Islamic state in the, by the Islamists is not regular states. It, is, it has not only prerogatives, it has also a mission. And the mission is protecting Islam. With, uh, beside, uh, because of protecting Islam became uh, has these prerogatives. Uh, and so meant Ghazali, Muhammad al-Ghazali. It is, it, is, it is here also the difference between traditionalist Muslim thinking and revivalist thinking. The state has a mission and the prerogatives. And when a citizen has complaints or so, against anyone 
he must go to the state or to the uh, uh, judiciary. What Ghazali meant after killing of uh, uh, Judah, uh, Faraj Fuda, he said the state is an Islamic state, Egyptian state is an Islamic state, it has the mission and the prerogatives. She did not, the Islamic state did not do its duty, its mission, uh, 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 punishing the uh, apostates like Faraj Fuda, so the society can go to the principle of commanding good and forbidding bad and killing Faraj Fuda itself. That is against so-called traditional Islamic state principles and against the Islamic jurisprudence who the state can apply the so-called commanding good and forbidding bad. So it is it is uh, for a part it is communal communal ideologies like post postmodernism in, in the in the so-called politics of identity it is uh, a part of it is postmodernism but it is going on the symbols they 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 uh, their essentialist uh, ideology it is going uh, back only symbolic to the so-called uh, uh, sacred texts and, uh, and Islamic traditions. In reality, they differ very much of, from it. Uh, and uh, all the last hundred years, it is a struggle against, uh, between revivalist and reformer on one side and so-called traditional Islam on the other side. And they have you know, now the upper hand. I, 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 uh, 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 I uh, uh, mentioned the uh, uh, causes for it, if it is enough. Uh, with, the, with the problem of uh, civil society, they don't have an alternative. They have the, uh, uh, the Islamists, they have the same vision like the corporate regimes and corporate society and corporate perception of the socialist uh, uh, after World War II, only uh, calling it Islamic unity and 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 and, and uh, authoritarian and uh, uh, holistic and so uh, uh, the last 20 years where they tried to uh, to, to to move. Uh, towards uh, towards so-called uh, uh, some openness, uh, I I uh, made the limitation of what they did. It is it is uh, when they are moderate, they are like the politics of the conservative of the center. That is their uh, endeavor, not uh, more. And when they see when they see. Uh, uh, they are in the opposition and they are uh, ready to make a very fierce opposition against the regimes. But when a regime uh, 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 wants to play and uh, try, try to play with them, they play with it. Like Turabi in the 80s and like Dhiya al-Haq and the Jama'a Islami in the 80s also in Pakistan. So uh, uh, they are a political force. Now strong it will be not more strong because they will not be used again by the regimes or by the Western, uh, by the Western countries because of September 11. 
And so there will be a force also, this Islamic revivalist in politics in the in next years, but they are not a force of change, not detrimental and not a force of, of change uh, uh, in, 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 in meaning of uh, progress and uh, development. We have to go to the, try to make a real political life, uh, real uh, uh, political institutions, and uh, there is many, many forces in society who, uh, who uh, can play. Uh, my uh, colleague spoke uh, much uh, about it. Thank you. I, just, I would just answer your question about what is the remedy to uh, the present situation in many of the Arab countries. I, I think it's very simple. It's um, with the consent of the governed, the will of the majority to be manifested, and the protection of the minority rights. And then if you apply those principles, uh, in an orderly way, I think uh, the people of our region will, and, and other parts of the world who are uh, denied these kinds of opportunities, will emerge with uh, relatively reasonable policies in the long run. And there will be a transition period of some tension and stress, and, uh, and very few countries in the world have made an orderly transition into stable democracies, and we're not going to do that any more than um, many of the Western governments did. But the point is we should have the same opportunity to do it. And I think it's uh, what bothers people and angers people uh, in many of our countries in the Middle East and Africa and Asia is that we are denied the opportunity to go through our own nation-building processes, even our own civil wars, if we want to have a civil war. We are denied that opportunity that other people had in the Western world because people say they can't afford to have instability in our countries, and the response to that is that we are, not, we are more than uh, the bounty of geology given by God. We are more than um, um, strategic uh, staging po posts for the British Empire. We are more than uh, oil and gas uh, resources. We are human beings who have the same rights as other human beings around the world. And the more that this process goes on and that people in our region are denied what they see to be their right to engage in a process of normal nation building according to majority will and the consent of the governed, the more anger builds up and humiliation and dehumanization. And the result is what we've seen in the last 10 years, um, not only the terrorism against the U.S., but now the prospect of the U.S. having military bases all over the region and this terrible cycle that we're engaged in, which we've got to break, this is no way to live. And the, the antidote uh, to this is, uh, is very simple, uh, a universal application of the same values that have, have inspired Western democracies for so long, the consent of the governed, the application of the majority's will, and the protection of minority rights. Well, we need to draw this session to a close, give you a chance to stretch your legs a little bit before the next session. Let's thank our speakers once again.